Have you ever come to a passage of scripture and wondered how you are supposed to think about it? In the last episode on studying the Bible, we looked at the framework we bring to the Bible. And when we ask such a question, our framework usually gives us a really quick answer. We immediately think about each passage the way our framework tells us to think about it. But what if we want to think deeper? What if we want to find out whether our framework is good or not? Well, then we need to know how to interpret the Bible. This is called hermeneutics. It is the science of interpreting the passage. This episode will be a bit more technical at first, but we will mostly look at practical examples later on to see different aspects of the science of interpretation at work. So don't worry if this technical stuff is not your cup of tea. I'm Daniel Clausen, and this is Exploring Christianity. When we come to studying the Bible, or figuring out what the Bible means when it says what it does. We have to understand that there are fixed laws of interpretation, and this is called the science of interpretation. Now, I'll just give you five of the main fixed laws that you'll need to understand or to interpret what you're reading when you read the Bible. The first thing you want to do is to look for the literal or plain meaning of the passage. That means you have to be careful of what genre and even style is used. So with genre, you're looking whether or not it's narrative, if it's legal, if it's poetry, prophecy, parable, genealogy, a discourse, or an epistle. And then you want to look at the style. Is this a figure of speech? Is this allegory? Is this a metaphor? You want to watch out for those things. And when you're looking for that, when you're looking for the literal or plain meaning of the passage, when you're careful for what genre and even what style is being used, don't be intent on looking for a hidden meaning in the passage. Look for the most obvious. Usually the most obvious meaning of the passage is the correct meaning of the passage. You also want to look for authorial intent. This means that what you are looking for in the Bible first is not what it means to you, but what the author intended. Now, we have to be careful here because sometimes we can be a little too heavy on the human author and not heavy enough on figuring out what the divine author intended. And that's often overlooked in modern times, that God is making a point in the passage, and it applies to you directly. But you first have to figure out what God is saying in the passage, and that includes what the human author is also saying. They're not usually saying different things, but oftentimes you'll find that the human author is really speaking to a situation in that day with that church or those people, and not to you specifically, even though the divine author is speaking to you specifically. 
And so you have to figure that out. You have to look for both the human and divine authorial intent. To do this, or to look for authorial intent, you need to ask three questions of the passage. What is the meaning of the words? And not even just the words. What is the meaning of the sentences? And not even just the sentences. What is the meaning of the paragraphs? I would say the sentence is the most basic unit of meaning. Not the individual words. That doesn't mean that individual words need to be defined and that their definitions aren't important. They are. They're important in as much as they are used in the sentence and in the paragraph for helping us understand the plain meaning of the text. And that's where it's helpful to have a Hebrew and a Greek lexicon or even an app on your phone that does all the hard work for you to figure out what the words mean and what they mean in their context. Next, you'll ask what the grammatical structure is. Now, grammatical structure is not my forte. I'm learning it and I'm seeing my need to learn it more and more as I write and as I read. But what you do when you're looking at the grammatical structure is you're going to ask Who is the subject? Who is the object? What is the verb or what action is happening in the passage? Or is there a modifier? Or is there a clause? Is there the word but or and or if or for or therefore? Those often show up in passages that require in-depth study to understand. Also, where is the emphasis? Maybe what you're seeing What your framework picks up on right away is not necessarily going to be the emphasis that the author is making in the passage. And then lastly, you're going to ask, what is the historical background to the text? Where is this taking place? To whom is this taking place? Where is the geographical location? What is the cultural context It's helpful to get into the mindset of the culture to figure out what struggles, what problems they're facing, what things are going on in society, what pressures they face as Christians or as God's people. What are they facing um, that might be a hindrance to their faith? Those kind of things will help us get into the mindset of the culture uh, of the people to whom the passage is written. I would say looking for the literal or plain meaning of the passage, looking for the authorial intent and the three questions that you want to ask with that. What are the meaning of words, sentences, and paragraphs? What is the grammatical structure? What is the historical background? Those are five fixed laws of interpretation that you want to utilize in order to understand what the passage is saying. Once you've covered that, then you can get to application. And in application, or applying the passage to your life, you're going to want to ask a few questions. And I think the first question you you have to ask, and I think it's first, I think, I think this one should be first, is the question of what doctrine is this teaching? What doctrine is this passage teaching? Or what is the teaching of this passage? And the reason I put it first is because I think we need 
more than anything, doctrine to form our worldview and our convictions, to influence the very heart of who we are. And from that flows everything else. Without doctrine, we don't have a good foundation on which to build any practical Christian living. So first, what doctrine is this passage teaching? Next, you want to ask, what is this passage telling me to do? Or how should I live in light of this passage, which is more the law or the prescription of the passage? Because we must live as God intends for us to live. We must live according to God's word. And to do that, we need to ask the question, what is this passage telling me to do? Another question we can ask is, what example is this passage setting? An exemplary passage. So maybe it's a story showing what you should do, or a story telling you what you shouldn't do. Not all stories or people are examples in the Bible, but there is often an exemplary application to a passage. Not something you go to right away, of course, but something to look out for nonetheless. Then you're going to ask maybe, what are the historical facts? You're going to look at the history. And this is a lot more simple than the other ones, but the history of the passage is actually applicable because our faith is based on the history of the Bible being true. And so we want to know, what is the history of the Bible? How can I learn from the historical facts? In a sense... What is my faith's history? In short, there's kind of three main questions you're going to be asking for application. What should I believe? What should I feel? And what should I do? And that covers all the bases. It covers your intellect, it covers your emotions, and it covers your will. And it covers your entire being. And there, the Bible is applied to you as a whole person. And that's the kind of application you want, of course. So that's the technical aspect of hermeneutics or of the science of interpretation. Next, I want to give you a few examples of what this looks like. And I mean, they're not exhaustive examples, but each example has maybe an insight to the passage that, for myself, for sure, I hadn't thought of before until I looked at it using all of the different scientific uh, scientific tools of interpretation. And they're all very popular stories and passages. And the first is the story of creation. Now the question of genre is, is it poetry? Is it history? Is it narrative? And the answer is, it's all of those. It is poetry, it is history, and it is narrative. And we take it as historical fact, and we appreciate the way it was written. Now, one thing is, we don't use the poetic nature of the passage to fit into our modern science. That's not what it's meant to do. And something interesting that I found in studying how Christians have historically understood this passage is that for the majority of the early church to the Middle Ages, the common belief was actually that God created everything in one moment. That the progression of Genesis chapter 1 is not a literal progression, but a literary form describing the perfection of what God has made. 
Now, you get that when you see that at the end of each day, God saw that it was good. And after he created man, God saw that it was very good. And early Christians took that to mean that God was describing the perfection of what he has made. And that was the point of the passage. Genesis chapter 2 verse 4 seems to be the transition from literary to historical. After chapter 2 verse 4, we get a historical narrative of how things were made. And the reason that early Christians believe this was due to the influence of Augustine, who argued that for God to need more than a moment to create everything, questioned his power and even his word that spoke everything into existence. That was what they were, in a sense, protecting by their understanding of the passage. Or at least that was the result of their understanding of the passage. But in the Middle Ages, there was a challenge to this idea. And the challenge was that you could see each day, all six days of creation, as 24-hour days and not lose sight of God's power. And in my mind, both work fine. Both are reasonable explanations of what Genesis chapter 1 means. And that's not to say now that I'm giving the okay to incorporate evolution into the creation story. It's rather far from that, because the point of Genesis 1 is not really to give us a detailed description of creation, a scientific description of creation, but to drive home the point that God is the source and sustainer of everyone and everything, as opposed to the pagan creation stories of gods and goddesses either engaged in a battle or a romantic love that creates everything. And Genesis 1 isn't a scientific description either. See, even Augustine in the early church, he warned against fitting Genesis chapter 1 into science because he said that science, already in the early church, he said science is unreliable compared to God's revelation because not only do the scientists contradict one another, they contradict one another throughout time. And we know that to be true because science is always finding new things that uh, previous scientists didn't see and disproving what they what previous scientists thought was reality. So now we bring our framework back into our study of the Bible, and we look at the story of creation in light of the whole story, in light of biblical theology. And when we look at it that way, the story of creation really establishes God as the one who acts and creation as the thing acted upon. So if we miss that in the story, because we are too concerned, you know, with giving a rebuttal to evolutionists, we've actually missed the point of Genesis chapter 1. The creation story establishes the whole story of redemption throughout the Bible, that God is the one who acts and that we are acted upon. Next, we want to look at the story of David and Goliath. Now, what is this story even about? Is it the underdog ending up victorious? Is this just a good old good versus evil story? Is this a, an example of how we should defeat the giants in our lives? 
What is this story about? Many people have given explanations about what this story is about. But to pull the true meaning from this story, we must first understand that it is historical narrative. Now, a general rule for historical narrative, especially in the Old Testament, especially in the Hebrew language, is that the story circles around the truth. That is how the Hebrews wrote. Now, there are a few themes in this story. The first is that David is God's chosen king. We see that from before the start of the story till well after this story is over. We see that David trusts in God that, and that Saul trusts in his army. So we see that difference. And then we see something that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. We see the seed of the woman in David versus the seed of the serpent in Goliath. And we also see that David is a type of Christ, that David is a substitute on behalf of God's people. Now, David and Goliath is a really good example of how historical narrative can be misconstrued to fit whatever message we desire. That means also then it's a good example for us how to look at historical narrative not only as a foreshadow or a type of the gospel, but also as an example for us to follow. So first, as substitutionary atonement, or as a foreshadow type of the gospel, Israel cannot defeat their enemy, which is the seed of the woman, Israel, versus the seed of the serpent, their enemy, the Philistines, often. And someone unsuspecting comes to take their place as their representative against Goliath. And this representative, who is David, he defeats the enemy in the place of God's people, and he secures the victory for them. And then he becomes their king to rule them. And this is a picture of Christ as our substitutionary atonement, who comes and takes our place against an enemy that we can't defeat. This story is also an example of the faith of David, of of faith taking up the arms to defeat sin and how we too must take up the arms of faith to defeat sin in our lives. So it is also an example to follow. It is an exemplary passage, not in the way that is commonly described as one, but in one that is consistent with the rest of the Bible. Next, I want to look at the story of Jonah and of Nineveh. And when we look at this story, we often stop at Jonah getting spit onto dry land, but the point of the whole story really comes at the end of the story. It's sort of like one of Jesus' parables, that the point comes at the end. The way this book is often understood is more of a man-centered perspective. It's a Jonah-centered perspective. It's all about Jonah being obedient to God and his struggle to be obedient to God. But the real meaning of Jonah and Nineveh should be God-centered. And Jonah 4 verse 11 is the obvious meaning of the book, where God rhetorically asks Jonah, should he not have pity on the city of Nineveh? So think about the book in light of that meaning. Why does Jonah immediately flee from Nineveh when God tells him to go? Well, it's not because he's lazy nor is it because he's intimidated by Nineveh or 
he's having trouble being obedient, we find out later that he is disappointed that God doesn't destroy the city. He doesn't go because he hates Nineveh. He believes they should be destroyed. Now, why wouldn't he go if the message he was supposed to tell them was that they would be destroyed? If he hated them and wanted them to be destroyed, wouldn't he be on the first boat to Nineveh? But Jonah reveals why. It's because God is merciful, that God is a relenting God, that if people turn from their sin, God will turn from the just punishment that he was going to give them, that he will have mercy on them. The point of Jonah is to show that God is a relenting God, that God will have mercy on those who turn to him, that he will not remain angry in his wrath against sinful man, but that if we turn from our sin, God will have mercy on us. God will not judge us. That's the point of Jonah. I mean, you could also look at Jonah as, as a story of how far God is willing to go to save people, to save the unsavable people, how God uses people that don't want to be used by him to save the unsavable even. It is really a, a story of the power of God, the, the power of God's mercy. Next, I want to look at two psalms because the poetry in psalms is interpreted differently than how we would interpret anything else in the Bible. It's not entirely different because there is a good bit of doctrinal teaching in it in them, you know, that tells us how we relate to God and who God is in himself. So there is doctrine in them and we study it as a doctrinal book, but we have to pay attention to the poetry. Now, many like to isolate particular verses and put them on their coffee mugs or on their walls for inspiration. And while individual verses may carry significant meaning by themselves, the meaning must still be joined to the entire psalm. Now, I really like Robert Godfrey's book on learning to love the psalms, and he points out that the psalms are to be read as a triangle. And the first verse, the middle verse, and the last verse all tell us what the focus of the psalm is. The middle verse is usually the meaning. Now, this is a really good tool to, for the most part, find out the authorial intent. Psalm 92 is a very good example of this. Verse 1 tells us it's good to give thanks and praise Jehovah. Because there are 15 verses, verse 8 is about the center of the psalm, telling us that Jehovah reigns forever. Now, this is the main reason why it is good to give thanks and praise him. Verse 15, then, we find the word declare similar to the first verse. And then the rest of the verses fill in the triangle. Many psalms work like this, but not all of them. If you take Psalm 93, for example, you can find sort of the triangle in verse 1, 2, and 5, but what this psalm does, and Robert Godfrey points this out, is show us the value of understanding the original language. Because Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme like English poetry. Rather, it's based on syllables, which you can't really translate from 
the Hebrew to English. For Psalm 93, the lines progressively increase in syllables. The first few lines are very short and choppy, and they really get our attention. The syllables then increase as the trouble is presented, and the last lines slow down even more. They are the longest. Um, They bring us to rest in the truth that God is a trustworthy God. So next time you're reading the Psalms, look for the triangle. See if that first verse and last verse are kind of saying the same thing, and then the middle verse telling you why the first and last verse are saying what they're saying. It's a neat little tool to help you understand the Psalms and look at the entire Psalm as a whole, as a, as a way for us to pray or praise God. Now, lastly, I want to take you to the Sermon on the Mount because something interesting happens in Matthew's account of the gospel. The Sermon on the Mount is not found in the same format in any of the other gospels, though many of the same teachings are scattered throughout them, making it possible that the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew is Matthew's collection of Jesus' teachings in a concise and accessible format, that Jesus didn't necessarily teach that sermon as one whole sermon. So often what happens when we study the sermon is that we think of it as a collection of different teachings anyway, or that Jesus had a lot of topics to preach about in one message, or that Matthew randomly selected Jesus' teachings. And the sermon is like a forest in that it is good to study the individual passages looking intently on how Jesus taught us about anger and murder, lust and adultery, oath-taking, forgiveness, and even prayer. But we must remember that trees make a forest, that there is a forest. And that means that we should take a step back from asking what the different passages mean to asking what is the point of the entire sermon that possibly Matthew had a reason for collecting all those teachings into one, or why Jesus taught this whole sermon as a whole, uh, depending on how you would would see the Sermon on the Mount, whether it's one whole sermon or a collection of sermons. I think when we look at it as a whole sermon, we find that the point of the sermon is in verses 17 to 20, that you must have a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. Leading up to this passage is a description of the righteous person, that their good works, uh, or that they will be a, a blessed person or a happy person, and that their good works shine like a city on a hill. But after verse 20, we find the sermon takes another approach that the meaning of the law or the the way we are righteous is not in outward appearance only, but in the heart. And that this main point gets to a climax in chapter 6, verse 33, where we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then after that it it tapers down to a conclusion. So if we take this as the main point, it causes us to ask a few more questions, and very good questions, I might add. 
how do we get this righteousness? If it's not by our outward actions, if it's by, if it's in our heart, how can we try our hardest to control our hearts instead of our actions? Or is this righteousness given to us? And these are good questions because they get to the heart of the gospel. And if we search the Bible with them in mind, especially when we get to Paul and his letters, we find that Jesus's righteousness is imputed to us, that this righteousness is Jesus's righteousness, and it's given freely to us in exchange for our sin. That is our standing with God. Then the Holy Spirit indwells us, and he shapes and conforms us into the righteousness that we possess. So I hope these examples help you to see the need for thinking about the Bible in terms of genre, authorial intent, meanings of words and sentences, and historical background, all with the help of systematic and biblical theology. My prayer is also that the next time you open your Bible, you might read each passage differently than before, or more deeply than you ever have before. Thank you for listening to this episode of Exploring Christianity. For more content and information, go to thechristianexplorer.org. There you will find articles, books, and other resources to help you explore the Christian faith better. You can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Join us next time as we explore the Christian faith together.